Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling and this is the show that I've been producing in Sydney, Australia for the last five years. And each week we bring an interview with some of the greatest and most fascinating guitar players from all around the world. Over the last couple of months, I've added a new show called Iconic Albums. So whilst the interviews drop every week, midweek, we have an Iconic Album episode. And that's where I'm joined by my friends Rob Rhodes and Gabor Jessica. And we take turns choosing an album each week and discussing it. It's kind of a rock and roll book club. Or at least that's how I like to frame it. This week, we're looking at one of Gabor's choices. It is the Police's album, Synchronicity. Today's episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. If you're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player, Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free 7-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. All right, here we are, Iconic Albums number nine. I'm joined by my friends Rob Rhodes. Hello. And Gabor Jessica. Hey, hey. Great to see you guys. Now, this week we are looking at the Police album, the final Police album, Synchronicity, from 84, was it Gabor? Three. 83. A good year, man. You brought this album to our attention for the series, man. Kick us off. All right, so... Oh. Before we even start, I've got to say, strap yourself in, folks, because there's a lot, <laughs> a lot going on with this album. Uh, so Synchronicity, probably my favourite Police album, and I think one of the, just me personally, I think one of the ultimate pop albums ever, with some of the, I think, greatest pop songs ever written on it. That's just my personal opinion on it. So it was recorded, uh, um, actually it was recorded in late 82, Mm-hmm. Uh, in December, November, December 82, um, over a six week period at Air Studios in Montserrat. So, Montserrat is a little island in the Caribbean. And um, the police recorded Ghost in the Machine, their prior album, there as well. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the main ideas behind going there was A, I think the, uh, the, the studio was set up originally by George Martin. And uh, I think his idea of setting it up in a little idyllic island scenario was. For you know, people like Mick Jagger and stuff, they can walk around and not necessarily be recognised because it was sort of before you know internet and all that sort of stuff. So, um, but I think one of the other reasons was, which we will find out later on, um, it was a place where you could keep the three guys as far apart from each other <laughs> as you possibly could. <laughs> well, I <laughs> did say it was space. their last album, so yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was it was uh, recorded uh, over six weeks there. And then uh, there was some overdubs and the mixing was done in Canada uh, at a studio called Le Studio. <laughs> what a fantastic name, Le Studio. Simple. Uh, in a little town uh, in Quebec, in Quebec, a ski resort actually in Quebec. Um, and uh, it was released on June 17, 1983. Um, 
it uh, was produced, well, officially it was produced by the police, but it was produced by the police and Hugh Padgham, uh, who also engineered it. So he was basically in the studio. He did pretty much everything. He was like the studio guy. Um, he was one of the sort of it guys in the 80s, early late 70s, early 80s. He did uh, Phil Collins' um, Like in the Air Tonight, you know, that kind of stuff. He was credited as a guy who invented gated reverb on drums. Wow. So you know that's a there you go. that's mm. a that's a that's a name. He worked with uh, Peter Gabriel, um, David Bowie, Genesis, Split Ends, XTC. He, he was sort of one of the it guys, and worked oh. on a lot of massive, massive albums, late seventies, early eighties. Um, all up, uh, it's hard to find exact numbers, but uh, now roughly that that album alone sold between fifteen to twenty million albums worldwide. Uh, it was number one pretty much everywhere in the world. Uh, it was the album that finally knocked Thriller off the number one spot. Um, so Thriller was, I mean, being the, the biggest album ever, Thriller, it was the album that actually knocked Thriller off the number one stop, uh, spot on the US Billboard charts. It spent 17 weeks on number one, uh, had four hit singles, um, and one of the things I didn't know until I, f uh, until, um, I was researching this, there were 36 variations of the cover. Did you guys know that? Yeah, Whoa. I didn't know, but yeah, I stumbled across that fact too. No so the, way. 30, so they were officially, they just had 36 different versions of the, of the cover and, um, uh, it was all different photos. And one of the things, uh, and this is, again, we'll get into this the more we talk about this, but. After they recorded the album, the guys were refusing to get together to do a photo shoot. Okay. <laughs> so what they did was they did three separate photo shoots with each guy. Um, and uh, so basically, and then each, each guy sort of was represented by a color. Um, but they had all these different photos. So they did 36 variations where uh, the, they were in different orders. The colors were in different orders. And there were different photos, and there was even a black version as well, where it was black with the with the colours on it instead of the white background. So I didn't know that until I kind of researched this. Um, so that's sort of the background. So you guys, uh, synchronicity or the police generally? What 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 like Rob? What are your thoughts on on the police? Uh, I've been a huge fan of the police my whole life. As soon as I was young enough to understand what it was, that first record. It's still a go-to for me. Uh, it's just, to me, it's rock trio perfection. Yeah, uh, it yeah. Is the, just, ultimate, the ultimate power trio. Yeah, yeah it's, there's punk attitude. There's, you know, that, that reggae scar thing that gets, that's implanted in there. And it's just so high energy and yeah. fueled with so much adrenaline that it's hard to, it's hard to not get pulled into that world and you can see why it was the way it was with them, you know, not yeah. getting along for very long. Oh God, yeah, they um, hated each other's guts. <laughs> yeah. Synchronicity is my, yeah, it, my first record is a standout for me because it, it conjures so much memories from my childhood. Was it uh, Regatta de Blanc? Yeah, that's the... Uh, Outlandus Diamor. Oh, Outlandus Diamor, yeah. yeah, sorry, yeah. And then... Synchronicity is second. Uh, again, it's my parents had the first record but didn't really have the next few. So I came across the other records on my own later uh, yeah. via a CD box set. Uh, but yeah, you, you could not escape 
in those early 80s to, you know, 84, I guess, you yeah. couldn't escape the police. They no. were just everywhere. No. They were, again, we're, we're so blessed in this country at that time for music television. You know, even if you took the MTV thing away that came later, we had so many shows on the ABC and Seven had shows and Ten had shows and Nine had Hey Hey It's Saturday and variety shows and you could even, the midday show, you'd see some of these bands, yeah, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And they all got around and you can see you can see some old footage of them. Um, but you, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't escape them and it wasn't until much later where I really started to deep dive into the police and I've got this, I think there's a four CD set. It, it kind of feels like a bootleg, but there's live. <laughs> and then okay. there's that documentary that we're talking about beforehand that Jules Holland did in Montserrat. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a whole With lot the of... cool ripped, ripped shirts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were weird looking. Anyway, yeah. And yeah, you, I really deep went deep on the police for a long time to the point where we even had a... We were trying to get a police show off the ground in the oh, early wow. 2000s, uh, but it didn't turn out because not one person could sing all of the songs. <laughs> so we were one per the my brother was on bass and I was playing guitar and we shared vocals. But even then, it was it's a hell of a his task. voice is 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 in a register that's very 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 unique and strange. Like not many other people can sing what he can sing no what? and even he can't sing what he used no, to be able true, to sing yeah. anymore but he still does a fantastic job you know? yeah that's interesting even on that reunion they did in uh was it 2007 ish 2008 yeah. a lot of the stuff was in different keys and it still sounds crazy high yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i went to that tour at uh olympic too, yeah. stadium wow that was that was amazing that was that was i mean side note that year I think I saw three acts I never expected to see all in one year because the police toured, yeah. Stevie Wonder toured uh -huh. because he released, uh, what was the album? Anyway, he released an album to toured. And uh, Dweezil Zappa did the Zappa Play Zappa tour and it was the first <laughs> Zappa Play Zappa tour where you actually had Frank on the screen and a band played and Frank sang on the screen oh, some wow. of the songs. Yeah. And it was all within one year. Those three of my favourite acts of all times that I never expected ever to see live. Amazing. And it was all, I think it was 2007, 2008, like you said, it was what that one year, all three of them toured yeah, Australia. Wow. It was, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, so we went and saw that show and um, then my, um, my lovely wife went, this is my favourite band and I wasn't close enough. So she flew to Perth that week to see their last show and got like front row. Oh wow! Oh. So it's like I can't have this be. This is the last time we're probably going to get to see them because you know they reform after however many years, and she was like, "I can't take these seats as my memory. I'm going, going again." <laughs> so yeah, that wow. that's it's a big band in my house. I recently for uh, birthday bought her the the vinyl box set. Oh wow! Um, which is um, yeah, it's killer. Talk about. Did you did you see his son's band that opened up for it? Which his son, who looks exactly like him and sounds exactly like him. No, I think I missed that. Because it was it was sadly Fergie oh, was yeah, one of the opening that's acts. Right. Yeah, but before forgotten. that was Sting's son son's band. I forgot what they were called, but um, it was a Power Three Piece. The son plays bass. Oh. 
Um, and looks and sounds just like him. And it was like the police, but like a newer version. And it had some cool songs too. Yeah. Um, um, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so, uh, Rob, what about, uh, Rob, Matt, what about you? Um, what about you and the police? Yeah. Um, like Rob said, well, you couldn't, you couldn't ignore them. They were all over the radio. Um, even before this album, of course, like Roxanne, Walking on yeah. the Moon, all that stuff, um, was, was huge. So, so the album comes out. So 84, my, my, I've got a brother who's six years older than me. So when this record comes out, he's, um, He's still living at home and he's got a great – he's just started to work. He's bought a beautiful stereo. He's got these vinyl records that we're not allowed to play. Um, <laughs> so I would, I would sneak into his room and um, he, had, he had this album on vinyl. And uh, he was my, my big brother, good, good dude, big influence because he was a, really into ACDC and the Angels, which was all this obvious guitar stuff, which really – got me interested in guitars and then but he, he listened to the like the police and the cure and um and all this stuff so yeah i used to sneak in and listen to this record on vinyl when it was when it was first cool. out and um yeah loved it absolutely and um actually my first big gig i ever went to was to see sting on that dream of the blue turtles tour oh wow yeah so that um, was right after the police yeah that was Killer band that band oh. he had was holy moly that was a good band <laughs> unbelievable two two things stick out for that that gig so I went in with my friends um, first time going into the city by ourselves into the the now now demolished Sydney Entertainment Centre mm. and um, I was just too rock and roll I didn't understand how great the band was until a couple of years later so I thought why are there no guitar solos. <laughs> <laughs> Well, As he if played I would guitar and a lot of it, didn't he? He was at he was, he was kind the, of the guitar, guitar player that for that band. band, yeah. And he was great, but like you got Kenny Kirkland and Branford Marcellus and Daryl. Yeah, Marcellus. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. Um, Omar Hakim, they're killing it nonstop. Yeah. So anyway, uh-huh. so there was I didn't understand the music, and I, I clearly remember in one of the songs there was some. I was about thirteen, fourteen, with a bunch of my friends. There were these girls sitting next to us, probably about our age, and they got up and started dancing, and they asked us to dance. Yeah, do you guys want? Yeah, and we're, and we're like. <laughs> No. <laughs> so I didn't understand the music and I didn't dance with the girls. Like two strikes, man. One more well, I would have been kicked that's out. Just no, that's just no good. But man, the album, <laughs> the album, unreal, amazing, amazing. It, it's a killer. It's a killer, especially once you dig into it and sort of find out sort of how it all kind of went about. Now, okay, so I'm, I'm going to start again with a little backstory. So one of the things, and I, I listened to an interview because uh, I, I really got into this actually, uh, and I, I I just started watching all these Sting and, and Police and stuff interviews and all this sort of stuff, and I watched an interview of Sting's from I think it was the early very early nineties or something like that, and they asked him about synchronicity uh, and the, the police and all that sort of stuff, and one of the things he said, and, and I think a lot of people don't quite realize that either. So he said at the time they recorded synchronicity. The band was together for about five years, which is really not that long of a time. And he said within five years, basically they went from being nobodies that no one gave a crap about that could barely pay the rent to all of a sudden being poster boys, millionaires. He said, you know, as well, it's like all of a sudden you have you're a really wealthy person. You're being recognized. You're being cast in feature films, which he was. He did a few feature films. Yeah. All within five years. I mean, that's a really, if you think about it, what did you do five years ago? That's It's a, such a short time frame to go from 
nothing to playing, being one of the, at the time, one of the very select bands that played stadium gigs because that wasn't a thing then mm. like it is now. There was Michael Jackson playing stadium gigs. There was maybe the Rolling Stones playing stadium gigs, but there weren't that many acts playing stadium gigs. And, I mean, they were literally the biggest band in the world at that time. Um, so that was, I think that was quite interesting sort of him saying you've got to realise – and with all the egos as well, you know, of course there's going to be egos because all this stuff happens in such a quick time. Your whole life, family life, everything changes uh, in such a quick time frame. And on top of it, you're on tour out of the five years, pr- probably four years of those they were on tour. And they recorded five albums in those five years. Cause, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing, really. Like the Beatles. I mean, they weren't together for that long and what they achieved yeah. in the time was insane. Anyway, and so he said uh, synchronicity sort of was really the first time um, uh, because I think they took a little bit of time off from Ghost in the Machine touring to when they actually went to record Synchronicity. It was the first time he had a bit of time off and a bit of time to actually reflect on what happened, this sort of massive roller coaster right they were on. Uh, and he said there's a lot of, especially being English, there's a lot of guilt that comes with all of a sudden I'm this wealthy guy who lives this idolized lifestyle am I really worth it? Is this really what happens? And I think he, he, one of the things he actually said is, and that's why a lot of um, rock stars sort of lose it because there's an incompetence of comprehending it, <laughs> comprehending it yeah, yeah. And, and dealing with it. Anyway, so he said a lot of the songs that he wrote uh, for Synchronicity came out of this actually realizing what has happened to me, you know, in the last few years. So that's sort of... Um, um, the guilt and the pressure that comes with being, and especially for him, being the main songwriter and everyone focused on him. He was sort of the, you know, he was the the, the face of the police, really. Um, so that's sort of, you know, how the songs came about. Um, uh, the album was sort of almost a concept album. So Synchronicity, uh, Sting was really into uh, an, uh, an author called Arthur Kessler, uh, and he was really into a book called The uh, The Roots of Coincidence, which is a book based on Carl Jung's um, theory of synchronicity. Now, synchronicity in Carl Jung, who was, a, I think he was a psychologist kind of guy, uh, Swiss guy, I think. So synchronicity means, and this is, I'm just quoting, I don't necessarily understand it, but <laughs> I'm <laughs> quoting, is where people interpret two separate and seemingly unrelated experiences or circumstances as being meaningfully intertwined even though there's no evidence that one led to the other and that the two events are linked in any way. So it's two completely separate events that happen that kind of form one event, sort of. Yeah, coincidence. Coincidence, yeah. yeah. So the album was sort of based, a lot of the lyrics he wrote were sort of based on that, and I think he even paraphrased some some words out of that book, out of that Roots of Coincidence book. And uh, on the album on the 36 different variations of the album cover when you look on the strip of him there's text and that's text from that book printed on the album too so to him it was sort of a concept album um uh so they recorded an album like i said at montserrat um uh because they didn't particularly like being together they didn't they there were lots of fights that happens instantly as soon as they get in a room together they all stayed in separate villas on opposite ends of the island <laughs> so they don't have to see each other with like staff that looked after them and drivers and everything. And um, 
they even went to the point, uh, and there's a very interesting interview um, with with Hugh Padgham, who was sort of the producer and um, also the di- he calls himself, I think, the diplomat of the. Uh, he okay. was the guy that that kind of tried to keep everything together, <laughs> yeah. and uh, who felt very uncomfortable a lot of times. Uh, but there's a, a YouTube channel called uh, Produce Like a Pro by a guy called Warren Hewitt, who's a, who did a lot of high-end producing himself and, and studio work. But he has a great YouTube channel called Producer Like a Pro. And he did uh, three, I think there's three of them, and they're all over an hour-long interviews with Hugh Padgham. And they're really, really, really interesting. I think two of them are mostly about the police, and one is about all the other stuff he did. Uh, but basically, uh, what they did was they set up Instead of it was a beautiful studio, you know, really set up by George Martin and had all the latest, best gear in it and stuff like that. But they set up uh, in three separate rooms as well, um, partially because they liked the sound of the drums better. So there was a dining room, for example, and they liked the sound of the drums better in a dining room than in a live room. The guitar was in the live room and Sting was in the console room. But it was also to stop them from during recording to actually go and have fist fights because apparently that happened prior in studios <laughs> when they were all in the same room together that mid-song they would just start having fist fights <laughs> <laughs> so they were set up in three completely separate rooms um, um, uh, there was about two weeks into the recording out of the six weeks um, basically the recording everyone was unhappy with everything that was done um, the producer or kind of engineer producer Hugh Padgham, he was kind of sick of the constant insults and being sort of the middleman always. Um, so the recording basically came to a halt and the band was talking about breaking up and not finishing the recording and splitting up. So Miles Copeland, uh, who is Stuart's brother, Stuart Copeland's brother, who was their manager and who funnily enough stayed on to be Sting's manager for many, many years after, mm. um, flew in and they had like an emergency meeting um and basically they reluctantly all of them agreed they said okay let's do this album and then call it call it quits so they basically as they were recording the album they knew that was going to be their last album um so they they continued recording um sting basically was the main as he was for many years prior the main songwriter but for this, again, because he had a little bit of extra time before they, between the last tour and when they recorded the album, he pretty much came in with fully produced demos. Um, and uh, uh, there was an interview with St- Stuart Copeland I, I listened to, and he basically said, so they rocked up at the studio in the morning and there was Sting saying, okay, we're recording this song today. This is what it sounds like. This is what you play. This is what, uh, Stuart, this is what you play. Andy, this is what you play. And he was very sort of demanding and very, this is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to happen. And Stuart Copeland always sort of said, hey, man, this is my band. I hired you. You know, <laughs> you don't, you're the bass player. You don't tell me, the drummer, how to play drums. And so there was always a lot of tension there. Yeah. Sounds like a few drummers I know. Yeah, well, true. true. <laughs> and, I mean, he's, it, you can sort of, when you listen to them talk, you can tell Stuart is that sort of over-the-top, yeah, loud totally. American, uh, American, my way or the yeah. highway. Sting is the very polite, quiet, but according to all these interviews, very hard to deal with. Um, but I mean, again, you don't reach a level like Sting without having a vision and, you know, you follow that vision and you get there regardless, you know. Um, 
so uh, there were lots. There was lots of tension, um, especially with Stuart. Um, and but they had sort of an unwritten agreement, the band, right from the start, that they would have on when they record an album, each member would have at least one song that they wrote on the album. So uh, they had Miss Grudenko, which was written by Stuart Copeland, and Mother. Which is one of the most bizarre songs oh, I reckon yes. ever. It almost belongs <laughs> on is, pork soda, mate. It's yeah, yeah. It is a bit primacy, actually. It is, which was Andy Summers' song, and so Sting apparently outright refused to play or sing on these songs. He just said, "I'm not doing this." Oh, um, okay. He just said, "No." Nah. And so Mother was pretty much Andy doing most of it, and I guess uh, Stuart played played some drums on it, but it was pretty much everything was Andy, including the singing. And apparently, I, won- for- I wondered that with that song in particular because it's just Andy Summers kind of shouting and shrieking over this about his mother. That this trippy phone yeah. rings and my mother's on the phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they always had a, a weird bizarre. song like that on all their records. You know, they do, like- and it's usually Andy's. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if he often does it just as just to piss Sting off. <laughs> I wondered if Sting said, "I am not singing that." So yeah, yeah, yeah apparently good to hear that. Ref- both songs he just refused and he said uh, and his there was also interviews where you can hear him say you know it's really hard to tell your bandmate that your song is let's just say crap to use a nicer word yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he just did he just said no nah, that's just i'm not doing it uh so apparently there was a lot of bartering going on um so sting reluctantly agreed to sing on miss gradenko even though he hated the song but it was there were deals done where Stuart would play certain drum bits the way Sting wanted them in return. So there was sort of bartering okay. going on. <laughs> wow! Uh, and apparently so it was functional, kind of like when we were talking about uh, the Deep Purple album. And um, you know, I'm only doing one take of the guitar solo, and that's oh, it. Yeah. And it was kind of yeah. like that one take. Yeah. And we're out of here, basically. So he sang it once or twice, and that was it. Um. Also quite interesting, the, the last track on the CD, Murder by Number, which wasn't on the vinyl because they ran out of time. Uh-huh. They, uh, there wasn't enough space on the, on the record, but they included it on the cassette and on the vinyl, uh, was a song that was co-written by Sting and Andy Summers. And uh, apparently the story goes, and again, that was that Hugh Padgham, if you listen to that interview, was talking about it. They were sitting around um, eating and uh uh, Andy Summers was playing a bunch of chords and Sting said, oh, that, that sounds actually really cool. Keep playing that. And Sting had a notebook where he had all his lyrics and he kind of went through the notebook and he found these lyrics that he had written down that sort of suited the song. And so according to Hugh Padgham, um, that was the last thing they recorded at Montserrat and literally they were... Uh, uh, Andy just sort of worked out these chords while they were eating dinner Sting looked at the lyrics. They said, "Okay, let's go and record it." And they went into the into the studio. They went into the each rooms, pressed record, one take, first run through, totally improvised. That ended up on the record. Wow. So, "Murder by Number," hundred wow. percent improvised, great which song is too. pretty cool, um, you know. Um, and, and that's what everyone. That's what like, you know. Hugh Padgham and all those guys always say when even though they hated each other and kicked each other and punched each other, when they got together, just something great always came out of it, basically. Mm. Interesting. Um, so I'm going to – sorry, there's a lot. There's quite a lot to go through with this. <laughs> um, so they basically, they recorded the album. They recorded everything. Mm-hmm. They were really unhappy with it. They didn't like what they did. 
um, especially Sting. Um, he, for example, when he brought in uh, "Every Breath You Take," he originally wanted to use the drum machine that he had uh, the the demo recorded with because he wanted it to be really simple. Mm-hmm. He he didn't want Stuart to do crazy stuff. Um, and I think that was part of that bartering that was going on. So he said, okay, I'll sing on your song, but you play every breath you take, you know, quietly. And there was an interview with Stuart Copeland I watched and he said, we knew that song was going to be huge because that was a great song. Yeah. And he kind of reluctantly gave in because he thought, you know, it, that will be, they were sort of saying in the studio, everyone knew that was going to be a humongous hit. And okay. it is their biggest hit. And it is one of, the, I, I, th- I think one of the sort of most iconic and, one of the ultimate pop songs because it's it's you instantly recognizable on first listen it kind of sounds like a lovely love song but then it's quite dark when you listen to the lyrics and it sort of has this underlying character which i find and i'm sorry i'm going on a lot about stuff personally i find this is the album as well where sting sort of became sting if you know what i mean like he that's where he found his sort of place as a songwriter, I think. And that sort of took him to the next level where he was going on. And if you listen to a lot of Sting stuff post um, Police, it's very storytelling. And if you listen to yeah. interviews where he talks about the songs that he wrote on his solo albums, he always says he puts himself into a character. And he it's almost like a movie that he – it's it's like a, a story, a, a script – and he puts himself into that character and writes a song around it. And I think Synchronicity was the album where he sort of really, f- he he found himself as a songwriter. Uh, and songs like Every Breath You Take, uh, Wrapped Around Your Finger, I mean, killer songs. Synchronicity 1 and 2, yeah. just just that, that uh, sort of sophisticated pop. Cool chords, interesting chords, harmonically interesting, lyrically interesting, but on a surface level, it's a pop song, you know, like The Simpsons. Kids watch it and they kind of go, oh, this, you know, Homer does something dumb, but there is all this underlying stuff that adults yeah, yeah, understand. Yeah. Anyway. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, so they left Montserrat. They took Christmas off, New Year's off, um, uh, to kind of take some time off. And then they all got together um, in Canada, in a studio called Le Studio, in a small mountain village and ski, ski resort called Morin Heights in Quebec. And it had a little studio in it, but apparently like a very well decked out studio. And uh, they went there to kind of mix it and do some overdubs. And again, there's a lot of stories um, uh, where so Sting and Stuart Copeland would refuse to be in the same room together. So they worked out that Sting goes skiing in the morning <laughs> and Stuart Copeland would be in the studio, and then there were, you know, there's a story again. Right. Hugh Patchman, uh, uh, Patchum, Packham, sorry, talks about, uh, you know, Sting was skiing. Um, Stuart was in the studio, and he said, "Oh, I just want to do some overdubs on the hi hat for every breath you take." And he sort of said, "Okay, all right, let's do it." And he did the overdubs, and then they have lunch. He leaves. Sting comes in in the afternoon. They listen to the song, and he goes, "What the." F. <laughs> and apparently he was sort of threatening um, Hugh, the producer, and he was standing there watching him. He said, you delete this, because this was all on tape. He said, you delete this now, and I want to see you delete it. And he watched him. And then he said, and then there was this sort of awkward situation where the next day, Stuart comes back in, and he goes, but where's my hi-hats? <laughs> and it would kind of go on and on like that. Um, uh, which I just find, I just find absolutely 
just hilarious. It's so funny to think of Sting, you know, this kind of very sophisticated, well-spoken guy. <laughs> I think he was definitely ready to be a solo artist. And he was definitely ready to be a solo artist. Run his own and show. Another funny thing that Hugh Packham talks about is Sting was very into fitness. And according to, he was said, a very, very vain man. <laughs> and there's a story where apparently he was, he had a little trampoline kind of thing, you know, <laughs> but it's like one of those running where you kind of run on a trampoline. And he would, while they were recording, he would kind of run. And also it was a way for him to kind of, for when he played live, for, to jump around and stuff like that. But he said, so he was, they were recording songs and he was usually in the console room and the tape machine would sort of move and everything would sort of <laughs> wobble around. And because of that, he was quite sloppy okay. when he played as well. And there's apparently quite sort of a few sort of stories again that are quite famous apparently where he... Um, they would say, "Okay, Sting, uh, you came a bit came a bit early into the chorus. Can we just punch you in, you know, for the bass part there?" And he goes, "No, I came in at the right time. Stuart and Andy need to punch in and come in with me." Oh. <laughs> and just said, "Refused to do it." And apparently, uh, a lot of the last two albums, uh, um, uh, Ghost and Machine and Synchronicity, uh, the bass tech. Uh, who was with the um, police right from the start, um, who was quite an able player as well, he would do a lot of overdubs and punch-ins because Sting just refused. Right. <laughs> so there's a lot of bass. And, and again, according to Hugh pa Packham, there is possibly even entire songs where Sting didn't even play bass on because okay. he just refused to fix it and the bass tech did it. There you go. This yeah. Is crazy. So it, it's, it's just the, the stuff that came out of this was just... Um, amazing. And so, so basically, uh, um, they hated everything they did at Montserrat. <laughs> then they got to that studio in, in, in Canada. And it was only when they sort of listened back to it, they kind of realized, you know what? We actually have quite a good album here. But um, they had to pretty much most songs, and especially the big hit songs, were completely rearranged. Um, and uh, he was, again, that Hugh Packham guy was talking about, um, that was sort of one of the first time he really used a console as an instrument because they were auto doing automations constantly taking things out putting things back in moving things around so there was a lot of rearranging that was done and it wasn't until then that it was the album that it, it sort of became in the end um whew. So that's 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 uh, 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 the backstory. <laughs> yeah, amazing. This, this is crazy, and I mean, we hear these stories throughout rock and roll history, um, and yet there's always that romantic yeah. notion of a band is a group of people who who work together, and you're like a team. And and we all know, like when you when you're playing a show or working on a project, um, it's just the best thing. It's, it's the greatest team sport ever, being in a band, but there's also these stories of bands imploding and yet coming up with some incredible piece of art. There's another, just quickly, another story that I just remembered that that, that same guy was talking about as well. So apparently there was a, a concert in France, they did, during the Synchronicity Tour, uh, where literally 10 minutes before the show, Sting and Stuart got into a fist fight and Sting sort of tackled Stuart and broke... Uh, his uh, some ribs or our rib, <laughs> and Stuart couldn't move his arm. Yeah, and again, apparently because the the drum tech was quite an able drummer and was with Stuart right from the start. Right. Apparently, the whole show, 
And that was before there were big screens and stuff like that. Yeah, so you yeah. were in a stadium and they were miles away. Apparently, they dimmed a lot of the lights and the drum tech played the whole show. No one ever knew. <laughs> awesome. Because Stuart had, had broken. I mean, it was. it's just... I, I absolutely love this. And it's something I never knew about. The, I mean, I knew they didn't like each other, but I never knew it to that extent. <laughs> Next level. Uh, it's just... I, I, it's, I love this sort of stuff. Awesome. Hey, we'll take... Uh, let's take a short break and then we'll get back and, and dig into some of the tracks of Synchronicity. This episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott, ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and the McNally Smith College of Music. I was one of the beta testers for the course and can say as a music educator, I was really impressed by the logical sequence of learning. The course has also been endorsed by players such as Brett Garson and Greg Cock. For more details, check out the links in our show notes. All right, welcome back. We're talking uh, Synchronicity by The Police. I'm here with Rob Rhodes and Gabor Jessica. Gabor, you brought us this record. Where to from here? Huh, well, well, I've not done enough talking. <laughs> Part two coming up, folks. Part two coming up. Well, um, I've just got a few things written down about gear. Yeah. it's Everything is a little bit sort of sketchy in those days, sort of what they were using, but... Um, uh, most likely what they were using. Um, so he had very early on, uh, Andy Summers um, had all his pedal boards and everything made by Pete Cornish. Yeah, right. Um, and Pete Cornish, for people that don't know, um, he uh, like guys like Jimmy Page used Pete Cornish stuff. And, and you know, it's whenever you see one of those big sort of back plastic looking, massively huge pedal board, with these big silver buttons on it. Because yeah. um, what he used to do was he used to take the guts out of all the pedals and stick them in in um, in this sort of pedal board thing. Um, and then you, But it was sort of one of the very early days of programming, also different routing options and all that sort of stuff. So ridiculously expensive stuff. Um, and but you know super high end stuff. So he was sort of one of the go to guys for a lot of the English artists back in the days. Yeah, Gilmore, Gilmore as well, I think. particularly. Gilmore yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of those guys are Cor- uh, Pete Diesel, Cornish. as we had last yeah. week. Diesel, as we had, yeah, yeah. which I, I didn't know that either. So in that board, uh, apparently there was a lot of stuff that was in there that he never really used, but okay. it was in there anyway. Uh, but he started sort of experimenting with it a bit more on um, synchronicity. Um, so there, I mean, he's he's known for the um, Dynacom compression, um, the uh, Echoplex delay, which he also used as a preamp to kind of, which a lot of people did in those days, kind of to run the the amps a bit hotter. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the electric mistress flanger, yes, which a lot of people think he used chorus, but it was actually the flanger. Yeah. But he also had in that uh, apparently, this is just sort of what I could find, uh, Mutron uh, three envelope filter. An electroharmonics muff fuzz. So not the big muff, but the muff fuzz, which was the one, it was a little thing that you would plug, like one of the very early things that would plug directly into your guitar. Oh, okay. Was, like, yep. you know, it had a jack attached to it. Yeah. Um, the uh, an MXR distortion plus uh, and a phase 90 amongst other things. Um, but that was sort of the, the ones I could sort of find out. Um, and usually he would run that uh, for long, long, pretty much most of the police you know, the, the sort of four or five years prior police era, he would run it into two Marshall JMP heads with two matching quad boxes. 
But around Ghost in the Machine and then on Synchronicity, he also, during the tour, he also had um, uh, Mesa Boogie Mark Three C, Mark Two, sorry, Mark Two C amps. Okay. So not 100% sure what he used on what track and what happened, but it was most likely that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, he also had, and there's that, you, uh, Rob, you were talking about that clip uh, with um, Jules Holland. Yeah. Um, where he shows off the Roland GR300 guitar synth, which he used um, a little bit on Ghost in the Machine. Again, not sure how much he used it on Synchronicity. Um, but that's sort of the guitar stuff. It's, I think, fairly straightforward on that album, a lot of it, uh, sure. as in gear-wise. And he's uh, Telecaster, of course. He had it well. Uh, so again, not a hundred percent sure because he used for most of the Police days. He used his, his heavily modified Tele, which there are multiple stories, but the most likely story is that he bought it off one of his guitar students, and it was already modded like that. Um, he bought it very, very cheap. It was an old. Um, hang on, I've, I've got it written down here somewhere. Uh, it was a, 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 a early '60s Tele. That was heavily modified and had that PA Humbucker um, in it and and yeah. an extra gain boost and all that sort of stuff. But uh, during Ghost of Machine again, he got his sixty-one, the red sixty-one Strat that oh, he okay. used quite a lot. Yeah. So again, there is. It's not a hundred percent sure what he used on what. He also apparently in the studio used a Les Paul and a three three five often for some bits. So what he took to Montserrat, I don't know. Maybe there was stuff there, but it's sort of not quite known what he used for what. Yeah, yeah. Um, The only thing that's sort of known, that is maybe more definite, is that anything that was acoustic on the album, he used uh, the Gibson Chet Atkins CE nylon string. Okay. Like, for example, on songs like Wrapped Around Your Finger and stuff like that. That really thin. Yeah. 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 the other thing that was there that was quite heavily used and that he, Andy Summers, more than anyone really got into, um, uh, apparently they'd got, not long before that album, they started recording of the album, Air Studios at Montserrat got um, a bunch of Oberheim uh, synths. Okay. Uh, and Andy apparently got quite into using it. And um, Sting apparently, again, was very impatient with that sort of stuff. So some of the, uh, like, for example, the... Um, the uh, the sequence for Synchronicity One is apparently just two presets that sort of intertwine. Oh, okay. Because uh, he just he was too impatient to um, work on sequencing stuff himself, so he, uh, he it was his presets basically that he kind of used for that. But apparently Andy Summers especially got really into the Oberheim stuff and into doing a lot of the so a lot of the sequencing and a lot of the synth stuff that you hear on synchronicity was Andy. Right, right. Um, cool. Uh, so that's that's the gear. Um, and yeah, so the Chad Atkins uh, nylon, which you can see in the film clip for Wrapped Around Your Finger as well, and he used it on the track as well. Nice. Sting ended up using one of those in his solo career as well for a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. To, uh, what was it, Fragile and songs like that. He, he, he played on that, yeah. 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 I mean, that first tour I saw, he, he pulled that out for the encore and he did... Um, a few police tunes. Okay, cool. Yeah, on that yeah. too. So yeah, interesting. Uh, Summers with the three three five. When he went on for his solo career, that was sort of his main guitar. For that was his that main stuff. thing. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, some of the extra things that I found. Yeah, definitely. It, a couple of places said he mostly on synchronicity used that sixty one red the strat, strat. Yeah, which he okay. had 
Fender custom shop build some replicas. I think it might yeah, have the, been for a, the recent tour. Yeah. yeah, so he took them out on tour, and I took it upon myself to try and track down what the wah pedal he was oh, yeah. using well, was. from the yeah from the Jules Holland thing. Yeah. And from what I could denounce from that Jules Holland clip, it was a Maestro Boomer. Oh wow! So yeah, I looked at it. I looked at the shape, and then I Google imaged it, and I was just going through, going, "Oh, I wonder what that is." And yeah, it's like that spaceship shape. And it definitely looked yeah. like the Maestro. It could have been like the Gibson version that came out later. Yeah. I think Gibson did a Maestro version later, but it was definitely, it definitely looked like that one. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The pedal board he had for that, for the reunion tour, looked really cool as well. It was uh, lots of I MIDI think, stuff and loopers. and. I think that was a Pete Cornish again, I think. Yeah, yeah. It might have been. Yeah, and the yeah. custom audio electronic. The was it the OD one hundreds? He had two, uh, oh, two yeah. or three of those on Bunch the stage. Heads, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great sounding amps. God. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. There's enough money there. What about what about <laughs> bass wise? Did you look at what um, Sting was using at the time? Uh, I think from most of what I could gather is he mostly plugged straight into the console. Yeah, with a 55 and a 57 precision bass. Precision, yeah. And a 62 jazz that came um, out quite regularly. Um, and then he made the switch to Ibanez basses. On Synchronicity, there was a Steinberger L2 used Which a lot. Hugh, Hugh Padger, Packham again hated because it just sounded horrible. Yeah. He said right. it just had no bass on it. Um, and then shortly after that, for the live, he switched to the Spectre on tour. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. he had that Van Zaline, is that how you say it? Van Zaline electric upright bass, um, which was a Dutch made instrument. And he used that on okay. Synchronicity a lot and used it live. Um, amps wise, it looked like he was using uh, Ampegs and Claire Brothers um, designed things. And they were loaded with EV drivers and JBL oh, horns. Cool. So. Yeah, that was what he was using. I thought just for, there'll be bass players out there that might want to know these things. I guess, so. yeah. yeah, man. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't bass look that much into it. I, I, I just think from. I, I just. Uh, uh, I remember a lot of it was just going straight into the console when he recorded it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I always remember him playing the those Ibanez basses, like the Roadsters and that stuff. Yeah, and, um, the, and fretless too. Yeah, he had yeah. The, like a fretless Roadster. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was me. I thought that was super cool back in the day. I still do. Um, but yeah, that vintage Fender thing. That's. That's interesting because in his solo career, he became known for that. Yeah. Um, and Fender did a signature as well. The signature yeah. model from yeah. That like like a fifty one or something had like the single coil. Mm. Um, yeah, and it had the the, the telly style headstock. The, yeah. The different. That awesome, the, man. Yeah, yeah. Love those. Yeah. yeah. Should we talk songs? Yeah. Well, okay. Well, favorite songs, uh, standout songs for you guys. Matt, start. Let's start with you. Yeah, um, I mean, Every Breath You Take, standout pop. Ultimate smash. pop song. I yeah, mean, it doesn't amazing. get much better than that. But what's what Summers does, well, I don't know how much of it was Sting or, or Summers, but those add two and add nine arpeggios. He, he turns call- those ice cream chords into instant hook and instant fantastic part. I call them the police chords because there's so many songs. And yeah. again, I think from what uh, from what I gather from these interviews that I listened to, 
Sting wrote a lot of that on piano. So I think the Every Breath You Take, the original version, uh, yeah. demo version, it was an organ playing. Oh, really? Um, wow. Uh, playing those chords. And then uh, Andy sort of worked out the chords uh, or similar sort of chords on guitar and, and then added the delay to it and all that sort of stuff and just right. the way he plays it and, and sort yeah. of put his sort of spin on it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I think uh, they are more piano chords and I think they come from Sting writing them, the stuff on piano. That must be why they're ridiculously hard to actually play what yeah. Summers plays. Like he chooses... The chord inversions and structures that he chooses are yeah. almost the hardest way you could possibly play that chord. <laughs> and it's is how it's, he chooses. It's an F chord as well. It's like in the hardest possible place. <laughs> it's because it's that F minor with that add nine or whatever you call it. Yeah. That chord. F, in, F minor add nine. It's basically that, isn't it? It's in A uh, flat, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's major, yeah. in in like with an F root, it's the the, the worst possible place to oh, play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a four fret stretch with a bar. But, you, but you can see, but you can see if you watch him play it live. If you watch him play it live, yeah. he actually shifts his first finger, so oh. he doesn't bar. He doesn't bar it. He plays yeah, the root. Right. Yeah, he comes out. Did and that. then he sh- he moves that first finger down, which makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, because it's a precision. it's a hell of a stretch. Oh, totally, totally. Uh, and to be so precise for the whole song, like I don't know if you guys have covered it, but when I've done it, yeah. it's the first, the intro is awesome. And then by about verse two, your hand's about to fall off. Same with um, um, Walking on the Moon. Not yeah. Walking on the Moon. Uh, uh, the, uh, do, 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 do. Message yeah, in the Walking bottom. on the Moon. Yeah, it is Walking yeah. on the Moon. It's, it's you know, you, you start playing it and you go, yeah, I'm nailing this. And then yeah. <laughs> sort of halfway through the song, you go, oh, crap. Do I have to keep going? <laughs> That's why it's good to play it off the delay. Then you can just sort of, oh, yeah, okay, I'll just. Uh. You know, I'm just going to palm you. So much energy, message in a bowl. How good is that? Yeah, Yeah, man. Yeah, Yeah. crazy good. So yeah, I mean, every breath. That's that's kind of the standout. But that's what I meant. Message in a bottle. That's the one I meant. Da 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 da. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's so much good. Both synchronicities are awesome. I love synchronicity too. Yeah, that's that's their version of rocking out. And there's these these crazy, like Rob said, crazy chord inversions. Um, very clever parts. (laughs) It's such a it's such a harmonically kind of intricate song, yeah. But it sounds so vanilla, almost not vanilla, but like so pop. But it's quite, and I don't know if it was the same when when you guys saw the Police with the reunion tour, but they came out and did um, Roxanne, and only the stage lights were on, and then they went into synchronicity too, and then a big lighting oh, went wow. on, and everything, Perfect. all the like the. The yellow, red, and blue stripes and stuff started flying around, and the sound just turned massive all of a sudden. And wow. I just remember that was that was quite a it was sort of a wow moment, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> unreal. Um, what else? What else? What else? Uh, walking in your footsteps. There's so many cool, like ambient and noisy guitars going on, just bubbling under the surface. That's yeah. that's yeah. pretty cool. Summers, summers moment. I thought, oh my god, that that sounded like Sting's solo stuff. Yeah, and that's got the saxophone. Is that the one with the saxophone in it too? Yeah, yeah and it, that's Sting playing the saxophone. I was going to ask, is that Sting yeah. playing? I'd read that. Wow, because I mean, he doesn't play a lot, but he's he's obviously playing his best couple of chops. Because um, yeah, because <laughs> I thought again, obviously the the Sting solo stuff with Marcellus early on, yeah, um, that totally echoed that. I, I like yeah, that yeah, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. I think that's the first album where you can sort of see. Yeah, it's like a he's transition. becoming Sting. He's not. He's, he's moving on from Police, and he's becoming Sting. 
Yeah, yeah. Mr. Gradenko had that, the guitar part on that reminded me of Bring on the Night. Okay, yeah. That kind of finger-picked thing. So interesting if Copeland wrote it. Again, yeah. who came up with the part was... That's, yeah, you never know these things, but... Yeah. Um... Which is kind of fun, like the the Beatles, I think... I think, Rob, you mentioned the Beatles in, in our break. Um, you never knew exactly who was playing what, which yeah, is kind yeah, of fun. Yeah. No, you had a good that's, idea. That's the beauty of that latest McCartney doco, yeah. is that he goes, oh, that was me, that was John, and you just go, oh, what? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh. i got to watch that, yeah. Which yeah. is, yeah, man. So I don't know, they, they were my standouts, but a, like a, a really... A really strong record. I could have done without Mother. I would have. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, well, the that's music, an odd one. <laughs> I mean, the music's really interesting. It would have been interesting to see what he actually wanted Sting to sing. I think when Sting refused, maybe he just went in there and goes, all right, I'm just going to shout some stuff. There was so much antagonizing. Like, you know, Copeland would always just play as fast as he could to annoy Sting and try and get him to make mistakes and yeah. get him to turn around and get an acknowledge. I'm sure... You know, it's a shame because <laughs> yeah. there was so much sense of humor on those first couple of records. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the, would you be my girl? Would you be my girl? You know, like he's doing the narration about the blow up doll and like they had <laughs> so much like comedy early on and then it got too serious. Sting, Sting and, got serious. <laughs> yeah. And he discovered world music, which is fine. Like it, it yeah. but you can't argue with the results. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, for me, favorite songs, Synchronicity 1 and 2, like opening a record, is it 6-8, Synchronicity, like the time signature, like opening yeah, yeah, a record yeah. with a, you know, yeah. something like that, that's ballsy. Yeah. Um, and then it's only surpassed by Synchronicity 2. Um, every breath is just perfection. And you never yeah. get sick of listening to it. No. Um, I always try to, whenever I play Stand By Me, Every breath oh, yeah. you take yep, yep, gets yep. a gets a little nod in there, Perfect. and and King of Pain, like oh yeah, I yeah, love wow. King of Pain. I love that snare sound in King of Pain as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, just again, just beautifully crafted hooks and yeah, um, light and dark. Just that that whole record does light and dark so well. Yeah. You know, he, I think he talks about it in a lot of those interviews where like take this pop song that's you know nice and sugary and then dark lyrics yeah yeah yeah. you just go (laughs) he he loves that sort of that 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 juxtaposition of of of, um you know kind of it sounds like you know on on the surface it's this beautiful love song but if you really listen to it it's about a guy kind of possessing someone else almost you know and it's yeah it's bizarre but um and same with uh, wrapped around your finger. I think that lyrically is very clever. How it sort of turns from you know, I'm wrapped around your finger to you're wrapped around my finger now, sort of. And I love also in, in that song how um, that, that's probably one of my favorite police songs ever. I love how it's around then when it's sort of that the story that the storyline shifts. Mm-hmm. That's when the drums come in and the backbeat comes in because before that there isn't really a proper drum beat. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. For like two thirds of the song, that the two and four thing, yeah. It's definitely. sort of more like a there's just almost like a random percussion kind of thing going on with the odd fills, 
But then it's sort of when that the storyline changes. That's when yeah. that snare hit comes in and then the backbeat for yeah. the, really for the outro. And that's the like he's always loved climbing. That. That's his big live moment, Copeland too, right? Because he starts out with the mallets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's, cool. <laughs> it's so good. It's just so good. Um, speaking of sense of humor, I didn't get a chance to look it up, but I would have really liked to have um, gotten what Sting's reaction at the time to Weird Al Yankovic's um, parody of King of Suede. <laughs> I, like, I would have really loved to have had time to look that up, but that... Maybe that's something we can we can look up and look up put in later in the comments. But um, <laughs> I'd imagine he'd uh, hate it. <laughs> I'm not sure he would have, have gone and meditated on it or something. Yeah, uh, yeah, good yeah. Old, good old good Al. Oh. Done some yoga. Did Gravi- like- apparently gravity boots. Apparently he had uh, in the studio had gravity boots and he was hanging upside down oh, playing. Yeah. Wow, man. <laughs> Why not? So fun fact time. There's someone okay, on yeah, a fun go, fact. Go, go, all right. Fun fact. So I don't know if you've got this one, Gabor, but um, I kept this one in my pocket just in case. Okay. But Sting wrote most of these songs while staying at uh, Ian Fleming's North Shore home. Oh, no. Called Goldeneye in Jamaica. Oh, wow. Okay. And he actually wrote most of the songs on the same desk that Ian Fleming wrote the James Bond novels on. Oh, wow. So there's some useless cool. information. But that cool information. Might come up at a trivia night one That's time, right. and you can Store thank me for that. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Rob. <laughs> Love it. Wow, that's cool. No, I didn't know that. I didn't. Uh, that didn't come up. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm digging deep. I'm digging deep. I knew you'd be into it, so I had to find. <laughs> I had to find something to, to go. Oh, right, got it. Love it. Did we get to your favourite songs, Gabor? So for me, like wrapped around your finger, that's probably one of my favorites. Every breath you take, I think, like Rob was saying as well, that's just yeah. it's just such a perfect song. Um, it just has everything the perfect pop song should have, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, Synchronicity one and two, I love both. I actually, I really quite like Mother, just because it's so <laughs> so out there and so, and I can do. just see, I could just see still to this day. Sting just absolutely cringing every time and just goes, ah, oh, if yeah. only that wasn't on the album. And just for that, <laughs> I just love it. And it's just so bizarre. <laughs> and I love, actually, the, the, the guitar playing on it is actually kind of cool. Like, like that sort of harmonic minor kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. Solo trippy. on it is really quite cool. Um, King of Pain, I mean, the singles, they were yeah, they were all fantastic. Monstrous. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, every breath you take, King of Pain, wrapped around your finger, and Synchronicity too. And apparently, Japan Synchronicity One was released there as a single as well, but oh, not anywhere yeah. else in the world. Um, and yeah, actually, I, I, I always had a had a thing for Murder by Number. I, I thought, and and then finding out that it was totally improvised, one take, never done again. <laughs> I just thought it's quite impressive. Yeah, no, I'm definitely going to go back and listen again with that context that's that's really interesting and apparently uh again also what the, the that producer guy was saying hugh packham if you really listen to the album because of how they were they, they had to gate drums out and gate things out you can sometimes if you really listen closely you can hear bits sort of ghost bits appearing in the song that um you don't you, you don't hear on first listen 
because they had to gate bits out when they were sort of rearranging the songs in Canada. Okay. Um, so apparently there's a few bits. I haven't. I can't hear anything. I haven't heard anything yet, but I haven't really listened to it with headphones and stuff on. But right. apparently there's quite a few, especially in Every Breath You Take and like the, the big singles. There's bits where they took a lot of stuff out and a lot of drum bits out and um, because Stuart was you know, wanted to play as much as possible on everything. <laughs> and Sting wanted to get rid of everything. Yeah. I'd love to uh, hear his his idea of uh, every breath you take. That'd, that'd be great. Well, apparently he wanted to do this Match kind of... Uh, crazy. This kind of... Because you know how in... in uh, is it... That's on Walking on the Moon, I think. It's the stereo hi-hats. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he runs it through a delay yeah. to give it that extra... But it's sort of two hi-hats that he plays on either yeah. side. And he wanted to do a similar thing like that on on um, Every Breath You Take. And Hugh Packham again said at the time he kind of thought it's not doesn't really fit. Yeah, so he, yeah. he he sort of reluctantly said, you know, you have to kind of be Switzerland, <laughs> you know, in that situation. But um, he sort of had to side with Sting because he said, you know, for the song yeah, to yeah. go with Sting saying, get rid of it, you yeah. know, it's crap. It ultimately suited the song, and even Stuart Copeland down the track agreed that it, yeah, it would have wrecked the song or would have made the song less than what it is. Yeah, sure. Yeah. On that, um, on that documentary that I have on that box set, um, yeah. there's there's a whole thing of um, Stuart Copeland showing how he does that delay delay thing with the you know, oh, with okay. the like rim shots Amazing. and like all that stuff. It's all you know, microphones as triggers, whatever, running into yeah. a delay. And yeah. that's how he does. Everyone thought, oh, yeah, he's doing that all with his hands. But No, but yeah. yeah and it's all playing it's off gates. delays. It's yeah. gated, gated delay. And I think, again, I think that was through Hugh Packham that he started getting into that, who did gated reverb as well in the studio. And he sort of, they started gating uh, during Ghost of the Machine. They started gating the, the, the delay. So it would only open the gate would only open up if you do the rim shot you know but it wouldn't open up if you played softer okay, okay. it's amazing so, yeah. how that all that sort of that era of like pop music and whatever you want to call it classic rock from that era they um a lot of those things were being discovered all at very similar times so yeah. i remember reading the in excess book where they basically discovered um, was it Mark Opitz? I think he was one of the first to do the a trigger on the kick drum and okay. in recording. So like he discovered that, and then I thought the remember reading once that the first instance of the gated snare drum was uh, with uh, John Cougar Mellencamp, and it was on a demo. And the record companies kept saying, "No one wants to hear the drums like that. Go away and re-record them." <laughs> and then like it wasn't that far. He stuck with it. And that was that big explosion of the gated snare in yeah. those early eighties, and yeah. he stuck by it because he just thought, "No, this is this is where things are going." Yeah. And it's amazing that the police were stumbling onto it. Very similar, yeah, right about time. the same time, yeah. yeah, yeah, crazy, yeah, man. Studio as instrument, yeah, it's it's, it's nonstop. It's just. We've just got certain historical markers like the gated snare or multi-tracking yeah, yeah. or when it went yeah. stereo, all that stuff, sampling. Yeah. So cool. Man, awesome record. Gabor, this has been a deep, deep, deep dish dive. <laughs> I, need, I need a nap. Love it. Yeah. 
Thank you, man. So good. And uh, no, th- thank you for for not falling asleep while I was yapping on for an hour there before. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> how could you? Like the record is absolutely engaging in every oh, manner, it's... from the music to the behind the scenes to yeah, yeah. yeah everything that's come since. You know, it's just absolutely. one of the ultimate albums. And I mean, what an album to go out on. To just go, you know what? We're calling it a day now. (laughs) And just, you know, that's it, done. On you know, just one of the one of one of the most iconic albums really of the eighties. I mean, it is one of the most iconic albums of the eighties. And people should like really check out some of those documentaries. I think Copeland did one a few years ago called Everybody Stares. I think that's what it was called. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got that on dvd or blu-ray somewhere that's great because it's all he took a handy cam everywhere from day one and he had all that footage wow and you see all that stuff you see the wrestling backstage you see (laughs) you know them just taking pot shots at one another and it's just insight behind the scenes on how difficult it is to keep a band together no matter how big or small you get like it's it really that no one wanted to compromise in that band and i guess that's why burnout burn up and burn out so yeah. so quickly yeah. <laughs> there's a really good documentary too called i think it's called better than therapy and it was off when they uh from when they sort of first got back together again mm-hmm. to do the to do the reunion tour and how they sort of like that went straight back into <sighs> arguing and bickering about everything and yeah. and sting saying no play to play it like this and uh, because, you know, <laughs> and just instantly went straight back into it. I think it went from because they were inducted. Was it inducted into Hall of Fame? Yeah, they were. Rock and, and that sort of that was a catalyst. Yeah. yeah. And then they started talking about you know maybe we should do a tour and and yeah it sort of follows that whole tour. I think it's called Better Than Therapy. Okay. Mate, What's it's like the riding odds? The bike. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's the old saying? You hurt me once. You know I'll remember it. Hurt me twice. You know I'll forget you forever. Hurt me three times. Your family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nah, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is that, a bit like that. That whole idea though of of within five years they were millionaires, they were the biggest band in the yeah. world. It it just and we see this time and again, it just shows we we're not I don't believe we're made to be crafted into these No. I mean, we use the word iconic albums, which which is cool, but you know, we're not we're not made to be icons no. for other human beings. It's no, no. We just it, don't it, we can't handle it. It has to play with with your head and i mean it's yeah. it's um yeah and especially when we were talking about the beatles as well you know yeah yeah i mean if you really look at because that's the thing i think and again sorry I'm, I'm babbling on but um in hindsight looking back you know the, the band like the police or the beatles they've been with us all our lives so it seems like this endless thing mm. but at the time i mean the beatles what they did in the what barely 10 years they were together yeah was just mind-blowing yeah. <laughs> you know 100%. where they went from the early days to you know sergeant pepper's revolver and all that in that shorter time frame and same with yeah police i mean in five years to go from being no ones to being you know stars in feature movies mm. yeah uh, it's was just i mean june. was it june june yeah, yeah. yeah that sci-fi thing <laughs> Which wasn't a great movie, but, <laughs> but and, really then, and Hendrix too, three years. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Wow. I mean, all these guys—they weren't around for that long, and yeah. it's just because they were—they've been with us for all our lives that yes. we think, you know. Yeah. But it was such a roller coaster ride for those guys. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's put a pin in it. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'll stop talking now. I'll zip the mouth. Oh, man. It's it's so fun. Um, guys, thank you so much. Thank Rob, you. Thanks, great Mark. album. Great choice. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. Absolutely. Rob, give us uh, where can people follow you? Uh, Google Living in the 70s or Facebook Living in the 70s Live. That's uh, where I spend most of my time and energy. Awesome, man. And Gabor. Well, if you want to hear me talk even more, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm not sure why you would, but um, talking about pedals and stuff, I actually do a podcast as well. uh, And I have a YouTube as well channel uh, called The Super Fun Awesome Happy Time Pedal Show, all one word, Super Fun Awesome Happy Time Pedal Show. Do you ever get that wrong? Uh, we used to always, if you watch our really, really early videos, we were always going, oh, what, what, is it super fun? We didn't even know. But now it's just, I wake up having nightmares saying it. So, <laughs> yeah, so, and we, we, you know, we review music gear, uh, guitars and amps and pedals, mostly pedals and stuff. Yeah. And, and I talk a lot as well. So nice. if you like me talking a lot. It's a cool show. Check it out. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, fellas. Catch you next time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys. All right, there you go. Synchronicity by The Police, a mega album, uh, dare I say it, an iconic album. And uh, that's why we spoke about it today. My thanks to Rob and Gabor for joining me again. It's been so fun putting together these episodes. And we've got plenty more coming up. We've got albums from the 80s, 90s, and the 20 teens, or however you say that. I don't know. Our interviews continue, of course. We've been interviewing some of the world's greatest guitar players for over five years now. And those episodes typically drop on the weekend and the iconic albums drop midweek. So the best thing to do is subscribe on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you pod. And then you won't miss a single thing here at the Guitar Speak podcast. Hey, my thanks also to Fretboard Biology who brought today's episode to you. Check out links to the comprehensive online guitar course in our show notes. All right, my name's Matt Wakeling. You've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. And in the words of the absolutely iconic Michael Schenker, Keep rocking, keep on rocking. Keep on rocking indeed. Catch you next time.